Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is guitarist and songwriter for Orleans, former member of House of Representatives, John Hall. First of all, artists are trying to go out on tour again, but they're having a tough time finding crew members and also gear like tour buses. One of the reasons why it's tough to find some crew members is because many have left the business during the pandemic and aren't going to come back. As far as tour buses, many of the fleets were sold off during a pandemic in order to keep the companies going, and now there's definitely a shortage. Some artists have even required that their crew be fully vaccinated before they sign on. Of course, when you're on a tour bus and in close contact, everybody's afraid what might happen if somebody isn't vaxxed and an outbreak happens. Who's responsible? Who pays for it? What's going to happen in that case? And that's why many artists are saying, you know, if you want to be on this tour, you have to be vaccinated. This isn't something that can be legally mandated, though, even though many people think that this would lose in court because it's hard to challenge a rule over public safety. It turns out that most of the crew members that are in fact seem to be truckers. And, of course, crews need trucks in order to survive They're behind the scenes, but nonetheless, they're there and they're an essential part. Many of the truckers have left the business already to drive long haul, and they're not faxed because they usually do it alone. So they're not coming back to the touring business. Now, again, you can't force someone to get vaccinated, but they are saying if you want to tour, you have to be vaccinated. There's a legal precedent here that says you can't ask if someone is vaxed. That being said you can ask them to present their vaccination card. So this is making a very challenging set of circumstances even more challenging, and it's going to stop a lot of tours from going out, and at the very least what's going to happen is there's going to be an influx of new, younger crew members, and it's going to take some time for them to get up to speed. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, I guess it's not that surprising, but... Musical gear manufacturers have actually thrived during the pandemic. One example is Avid, where they found their first quarter revenue up by 9% over last year, and their subscription income was like $25 million, up 78%. They have 28,000 subscriptions already, and the stock price has tripled. Now, most manufacturers are turning to subscriptions for a steady income, But in the case of Avid, they also have hardware, which is what's driving their profit. This is just like Apple. Apple does the same thing. They have lots of different subscriptions that they can get you in on. But what really makes them money is the hardware sales. Now, there's a growing trend in the industry. Software developers are switching to subscription, and most users don't like this. But you can't really blame a developer for doing this because rather than having a one-time sale and then having to do free updates over and over, it's better for them in the long run if they have someone subscribing at a very low price. 
although sometimes it's not so low, but we're seeing this more and more in the industry. Most gear manufacturers are up over last year in terms of sales, and retailers are actually pleading for more stock. So it turns out the pandemic has been good for business. My guest this week is musician, songwriter, politician, environmentalist, and community activist John Hall. John was one of the founders of the group Orleans and a co-writer of their two huge hits that you still hear all the time, Dance With Me and Still The One. John has written songs for Janis Joplin, Bonnie Raitt, Ricky Skaggs, Steve Warner, and James Taylor. He's also played guitar on tours and records for Little Feet, Taj Mahal, Jackson Brown, and Seals and Crofts. John took a break from music to enter politics, where he was elected to the legislature of Ulster County, New York, the Socrates Board of Education, and finally to the U.S. House of Representatives, representing the 19th Congressional District of New York, where he served from 2007 to 2011. He continues to play at the Orleans, as well as release solo material, including his latest album titled Reclaiming My Time. During the interview, we spoke about some of the recording and mixing background of Still the One, why serving in political office is much harder than running, the difficulties of cutting an album during COVID, and much more. I spoke with John via Zoom from Nashville. Tell me about getting into the music business. (laughs) Well, um, I started playing piano when I was four and a half. figured out how to play the Marine's hymn with both hands on the piano. And my parents sent me to take uh, piano lessons when I was five. And, and um, that's how I got into the music business. I, uh, you know, one thing led to another. I mean, I was doing, uh, I, I studied piano for 11 years. I studied French horn for six years. I, uh, you know, was training classical music first, but always gravitated toward other things. My parents played show tunes around the house. I, I uh, started hearing rock and roll, folk, folk music first, and then rock and roll, and played drums when I was 12 in a, in a band that did weddings and bar mitzvahs and proms and that kind of thing, and then with the brushes making salad. And then uh, I, I played um, piano or bass or guitar in different bands and gradually gravitated guitar. At what point I transitioned from doing a gig to being in the business, I don't really know, because I have been playing and getting paid for it since I was 16. So, well, actually, I got paid to play organ in church when I was younger than that. Wow. You know, 15 bucks for a novena. But um, it's all it's all a gradual process, as, as you know. And I guess when I, uh, my wife at the time and co-writer, Johanna Paul and I, um, I started Right. But before we started writing songs together, uh, her father, who was a dramaturg and uh, critic for the Philadelphia Bulletin, introduced me to some folks, uh, and uh, including Ezra Horvitz, the playwright who I did an off-Broadway show and a Broadway show with. And and that's when I started to get paid real money and, and, uh, and paid through the union, which is kind of at that point you really are in the business. What's interesting here is, which I didn't realize the, your background like that, is uh, it's a pretty legit background, and then suddenly you're in a, a rock band. Yeah, you know, it was, my grandmother, uh, my father's mother, who lived in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, had in the third story of her house, my dad went to Brown, his father was dean of engineering at Brown, and uh, 
their house was right next to the Brown campus, one of the football fields actually across the street. And um, But in, in the top floor of her house, she had a little, one of those old RCA wooden radios with a 15-inch speaker, all the carved scrolling on it and stuff. And my dad had hot-wired a turntable into it so she could play albums through it. And she had an LP by the Weavers with Pete Seeger and Ronnie Gilbert and, and um, those folks. And also she had a Chet Atkins record. And I got turned on to both of those artists from my grandmother. And one of the first songs I learned to play on acoustic guitar was uh, This Land is Your Land. And one of the first, or if not, I think it was the first song I ever learned to play on electric guitar was Glowworm from a Chet Atkins record. And um, so, I, you know, I was playing piano already, but at that point, I just transferred the, if, once you learn piano, you can transfer the harmonic knowledge and chordal knowledge to any other instrument some more easily than others but doesn't let you play oboe but you can uh, you understand what's going on yeah and so that's how i was able to move into all these other instruments but your mindset is different when you're going into become an electric musician yeah especially electric guitar it's a different mindset from the acoustic world it is although i was just saying to somebody yesterday that all music is perceived acoustically it doesn't matter if if it's digitally transferred and translated and stored, you're hearing sound waves in a room and the room has acoustics. And so it's it's kind of a misnomer really to say this is acoustic and that's electric. Because boy, I was at a, a show recently, there were a lot of hard surfaces in the room and a pretty loud band playing. My ears were telling me that it was too loud and that was on acoustic mm. phenomenon. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm getting into... Uh, Details that probably don't deserve the time I'm taking out for them. <laughs> what was the first record deal you had? It wasn't with Orleans, was it? No, I actually had a deal with a band called Kangaroo that I played bass with um, back in, I bet it was 69, 68, maybe. I was 18 years old. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, it was 68. I was 20 years old, so maybe it was earlier than that. But anyway, we made a record for MGM Records, um, Barbara Keith was in that band, woman, acoustic guitar player, singer-songwriter, who wrote uh, Save, uh, Free the People for Delaney and Bonnie, mm, and yeah. made a couple albums for Warner Brothers uh, solo after the Kangaroo period. And uh, my guitar player and partner from Arlington, Virginia, and Washington, D.C., uh, Teddy Spelios, and drummer named Andy Smart, who went on to be the first drummer in Mountain with Leslie West. And, um, you know, that band... We were all very young, and the songs sound like it. But it was a chance to get in the studio and get some experience. That's mainly what that record's good for, in my opinion. But <laughs> um, And then I made a solo album for Columbia in 1970 called Action that Harvey Brooks produced. And Harvey from The Electric Flag yeah. played bass on Dylan's Blonde on Blonde and tons of other great records. So, yeah. so those were pre-Orleans. And um, I, I wound up playing in a band uh, with Harvey Brooks, and Wells Kelly, who Harvey and I both found in New York, you know, jamming at different lofts. And we, I actually done a couple of recording sessions for other people as a hired guitar player with Wells as the drummer on the same session. And um, so we, at that point, we had a band that uh, basically played on my record action and then went to California. We spent some time in LA and some time in Marin County, um, in Mill Valley, California, just north of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Uh, on my album budget, I didn't realize 
Harvey's credit cards were all being charged to my royalties. But um, but we had a good time, you know, and, and we learned a lot more. But that's, you know, that's the first band I was in with Wells Kelly. Which, oh, Harvard decided instead of making a John Hall, another John Hall record, we were going to uh, be a band and make a band record. And I was fine with that, you know, didn't pan out like Orleans did. Anyway, we called it Thunder Frog. And, and uh, Wells left to go join his brother Sherman in France and be in the band King Har- Harvest, where they recorded Dance in the Moonlight, the song Sherman Kelly wrote. Um, which was their big hit, yeah. and which we've also recorded in uh, title track of one of our albums. But uh, but that was kind of like half of Orleans in that band, and then and then Larry Hoppin, who was one of the original three Orleans guys with me and Wells, uh, he had been in a band uh, with Sherman Kelly and at times Wells Kelly, and and Bob Leinbach, who later played on a number of albums and did a number of tours with Orleans. Also was in Bafalongo at different times, precursor band. And, um, and so that's how it all kind of came together was it's, it's serendipity. I mean, people's paths cross and then cross again. And, and we just figured out that we made good music together. It's kind of the nature of the business though. You, you grow up with a bunch of people and you keep on coming back to them. It, it, well, if you get along with them musically and if you get along with them socially, I think, you, you know, you keep on coming back. Right. So Orleans, two huge hits, and still the one. You've talked about this endlessly, so I apologize for going there okay. again. But that being said, there's something about still the one that every time I hear it, I admire the craftsmanship on it. It's the ending. Now, the hook is great. Everything is terrific about it. But I love the ending and how it recapitulates the bridge. Yeah, you know, I I learned uh, a lot from the Beatles, and one of the things I learned was, or the importance of, I should say, writing good bridges and good endings and intros too. First song on this new album, "Reclaiming My Time," is really kind of a Beatlesy intro, although people have also said it sounds like the Birds because uh, it's a twelve-stringy kind of very ringing guitar. But um, you know, and that ending happens at the beginning. It's it's a chordal structure that doesn't happen anywhere else in the song. But that's like eight days a week. Yeah. Eight days a week started and ended with a six-eight guitar over a four-four drum beat in an ascending order. So anyway, yeah, everything comes from somewhere else. I heard somebody say it all goes back to Chuck Berry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Still, the one has been huge for you. I mean, covers and commercials, and it still keeps on going. Thank God. You know, it's nice to have something I've talked endlessly about, but. Uh, that the other people actually care about. Yeah, uh, still the one we we cut three times for that record, and Chuck Plotkin, our producer, who was the first producer I've worked with who I could actually listen to, and change my mind about my song, or recording or something. I I, I had the typical artist like I know better thing, but Chuck kept telling us we cut a track on it and. It was too shuffly. It was like da 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 da. The we been together. It was just the wrong feel, hmm. and Chuck knew that. And so he got us to cut it again. And we cut it a second time. It wasn't quite right. I think the first time we had two drummers, Wells Kelly and Jerry Murata, who played on that record with us. And the second time, I think it was Wells playing drums and Jerry playing percussion. And the third time, which is what the hit version is. Uh, Jerry Murata was playing drums and Wells was playing tambourine and other percussion. And um, 
at some point in the session, Chuck told everybody to leave except me and Jerry and him. And we sat there, went over the bass drum part and, and the snare part and the hi-hat part and got it the way it is. It sounds One of the good thing about Jerry Murata is he was able to play like a drum machine before there were drum machines. And um, he went on to play with Peter Gabriel and, and you know, lots of other terrific uh, bands. And and he worked with drum machines you know, when it was first the thing, you know, a thing. But before that, he could play like that. So he he went up playing this straight hi-hat beat and was like, and Chuck, like, he went, that's it. When he heard it, it was like the kick drum going boom, 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 boom. And the hi-hats are some four straight fours instead of a shuffle. Da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah. That, just straight slamming that beat and a snare drum on the backbeat. And I'm, uh, I come up with this part for the upbeat Fender Rose piano, kind of reggae upbeat part. And, and then the guitar part, which was Chuck Berry, changed a little bit by me, of course, but it's like, that's it. That's the formula. And uh, with the exception of the bridge, that goes through the entire song. Did you cut it live? We cut it live, except for we didn't cut the vocals live. We didn't cut the lead guitars live. But yeah, we, cut, we wound up cutting the track with two guitars, rhythm guitars, me doing the Chuck Berry part. Larry playing these upbeat chink kind of things, and uh, or maybe Larry overdubbed that, and he was playing the Fender Rhodes upbeats. I think that's what it was. And Lance playing bass, and um, yeah, so it was a live track, and then we worked really hard on the overdubs as as people do. I listened to it yesterday really closely, and it sounds really good. I mean, the the just the sonics of it are really good. The way it all fits together, it's well mixed. It's like wow. This is great. Yeah, I should give credit where credit is due. Greg Ladani was the uh, the recording engineer, and Val Garay was the mixdown engineer. Oh, there we and go. Both those guys are geniuses. So, and Val, you know, he's so. This is before automation. It was before you could store things and come back and change them or fix them. And so we were just doing a a pass mixing the twenty four track tape to the uh, two track, and. Um, Everybody's reaching over the console. I was probably, I think I was riding Tom Toms or something. And Larry was on the back of the console reaching this way to ride the harmony vocals. And Val had the lead vocal under his hand and the two lead guitar tracks. And so we did, I think it was, it's either the first or the second take of a mix. Maybe it was the first one. At any rate, we didn't think it was done. We were done with it yet. And Val got up from the console and his girlfriend was at the door and he said, I'm going to lunch. We'll start the next tune after I get back. And we're going, Val, we haven't even heard it yet. We didn't even roll it back and listen to the next. And he says, my hands were shaking. That was the one. Believe me. You know, and then he left. And that's it. Wow. And, you know, it just goes to show that sometimes, you know, you you get too close to see the forest for the trees. And, and uh, fortunately, we had people we could trust and listen to, you know, Chuck and Val and various other folks throughout our career. I want to talk about your new album, and we'll get to it. But first, politics. So how did that happen? Because that, talk about left turn. And not only that. Not a right turn. <laughs> but you're successful at it to a level that most people that go into it, they never get there. I'm so, like that. I actually, my great aunt taught me this to uh, windsurf. <laughs> and I wound up racing windsurfers on the Hudson River. I learned to ski when my daughter was seven and wanted to me to go as a chaperone with her school group and i wound up learning to ski becoming an instructor and you know instructor of the year at hunter mountain in the catskills in uh, in uh, 1997 
I just, if I commit to doing something, I try to do it as well as I can. And so uh, I first got into politics when I was, uh, when I was trying to stop the, uh, the county, Ulster County, New York, from putting a giant incinerator and landfill on our last undeveloped farm in the town of Saugerties, which is just east of Woodstock, New York. And, um, you know, I started a group of uh, Saugerties Concerned Citizens. It's just a activist citizens group. And we got motorcades and rallies and fundraisers and all this stuff going. And and um, I wound up there. People just said, well, why don't you run? Because the guy who had been representing us in the legislature up until that point had voted for this in his own hometown. And it's the kind of thing. This was a farm that was on the National Historic Register. Belonged to the guy, uh, it was the Winston farm, belonged to James Winston, the man who, engineer who designed the entire drinking water system for New York City, the, the reservoirs and the Catskills and the, the uh, underground uh, aqueducts that bring the water down to the city and all that. It's just a remarkable feat of engineering back when he did it. And uh, it also became, after we saved it from being uh, a giant incinerator with uh, 200,000 tons of garbage on it uh, a year for 20 years, it was later the site of uh, the Woodstock 94, 25th anniversary of the Woodstock Festival. And um, I actually was out there the day after the festival ended with a garbage bag and a bunch of other volunteers picking up muddy trash and tents and sleeping bags and stuff and sneakers that people had left behind. Oh, boy. Because I didn't want to, like, save it from being a dump and then have it becoming a dump again yeah. because of a musical event. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so I just, you know... I had an advantage running for office, whether it's school board or county legislature or Congress, because I'm used to being the product. You know, when you're a musician, they talk about selling a song on stage or selling a guitar solo, you know, wave the neck of the guitar around a lot and jump up and down and slide on your knees while you're playing your solo, selling the solo. So, you know, I've been heckled. I've had beer bottles thrown at me playing a frat party. I mean, you develop a thick skin as a musician and or most most of them do who stick with it and uh so and i plus i read a lot and i pay attention to the issues i care about so uh, i think my opponent in my congressional race and the other ones thought this tree hugging guitar player you know he'll be easy he's he's not going to be a problem and it turns out uh, that i held my own so uh, it was an amazing experience and serving in office is much harder than running 13 hours a day seven days a week if you do it conscientiously at least in Congress, that's that's my opinion. Okay, so it obviously wasn't what you expected when you got there then. Well, no, I mean, I didn't really know what to expect. I knew it was going to be hard, and I knew it was going to be important work, and I I knew I was going to be feel responsible to my 650,000 constituents. I represented more people than the state of Alaska or Vermont oh. or Wyoming, I believe. I mean, there's like, it's, this district's... Um, are generally written to be the same size, except in the smaller states where they have to have at least one Congress yeah. and two senators. But so the less populated states, you know, some of them I was representing, representing more people than the entire state has. And, um, but, you know, the thing is, if you keep your ears open and you're not afraid to ask questions, you can learn a lot. And I learned how to uh, draft legislation and how to get it and how to have a good staff. I mean, that's the main thing is no member of Congress is any better than their staff is. And I had some really good help doing that and, and great staff people. Chief of staff, my first term was a woman who had 
formerly uh, run Chuck Schumer's, uh, Senator Schumer's uh, Hudson Valley office. And uh, and then the second term after that, it was uh, a woman who was previously my district coordinator, uh, chief of staff uh, in New York, who moved to Washington and was my chief of staff there. And she had previously been a legislator in New Hampshire and, you know, herself been elected to a couple of things. And, and we just uh, got stacks of hundreds of resumes from people who wanted jobs then sorted through them. And my staff would, the chief of staff and, and, uh, and district coordinator would, would look through all these things and present me with what they thought were the top 10 for each job. And, um, and we go over them together and interview the final three and then pick one. And it was really interesting because it's a different level of, uh, of complication and layers of people than, I mean, I guess maybe a big tour, you know, we did, we did a tour in, um, Japan, Orleans did when we first went over there after our live album came out where we had, I think, 17 roadies for six guys in the band. Well, this was a case where I had 22 staff in Congress, including a couple of interns for one, me, you know, and I needed them all. Wow. <laughs> the schedule. The main thing I miss is the scheduler and kind of doing that in terms of, you know, interviews with you and other people. But but um, it really helps to have somebody calling you in the morning. He said, wake up. you got this interview coming up in half an hour. And uh, it's got, kind of like having a road manager and a tour manager on the road. I owned a restaurant for a little bit and we were applying for a hard liquor license and I had to go in front of the board of the local town. And I was shocked at the language. I thought, oh, this will be easy. I'll just make my case. But the language was so different. Everybody that came in and presented had a different language than i was ever used to using yeah like reclaiming my time <laughs> yeah you know on the floor of the house of representatives if if i was speaking and the chair or the speaker had given me two minutes to talk about a particular bill i could be in mid-sentence and somebody across the aisle or on my side of the aisle would wave their hand and say may i comment on that and i would say recognize the recognize the gentleman from texas for 30 seconds or whatever state it was. And when their time had run out, I would say, reclaiming my time, Madam Speaker, uh, I'll finish by saying this. And if you don't reclaim your time, you don't ever get to do it, to say anything again. Wow. That's what, that's what the album title uh, means. It's just, you know, I, I'm trying to reclaim the time that I spent you know, 10 years in elective office, the foreign Congress in particular, but it also kind of became, as we were putting the record together and, and, the package together and, and all that. It became about the reclaiming the lost year of the pandemic or a year and several months. And um, people have, have commented on that. And, uh, and you know, some of the songs really uh, relate to the same thing. Where did you cut it? Uh, at various places. Um, cut a bunch of tracks uh, in Nashville, which is where I am right now. Uh, uh, some of them upstate New York, Millbrook Sound in Millbrook, New York and Dutchess County, uh, is uh, where a number of them were cut and all of them were mixed. So, you know, and then people, because a lot of recording was done during the pandemic, people recorded from, you know, different states and from their own homes and studios. Um, Jay Collins, who played sax on a couple of tracks, uh, was in his house in uh, Catskill, New York. There were, oh, John Cowan was, you know, singing and playing bass on one track and 
know, he did, did uh, the, the singing from his house in Columbia, Tennessee. You know, there were a couple of people, you know, scattered around uh, either in the Hudson Valley or down here. And it's amazing what you can do now. It's not the same as being in the, in the same room together and play music with other human beings. Uh, it has to be edited and mixed carefully to make it sound like you were together. Uh, and good musicians can listen to the other tracks and figure you know, what they should do to complement it. But um, but I was very lucky to have these players and singers. Guy named Sean Paddock played drums on most of it. He's Kenny Chesney's drummer for the last 20 years or so. And he um, has a studio in his basement of his house in um, Tennessee, uh, uh, Mount Juliet, on, out on uh, Old Hickory Lake. And uh, we actually did uh, John Paul Daniel, who played bass on a lot of it, and co-wrote about half the record with me. And I would go out there and record some things with with Sean, all, all knowing how careful we were being. And uh, but it's a it's an interesting way of putting a record together. I'm I'm not saying I want to put my next record together this way. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we're actually working on an Orleans Christmas album right now. It's almost finished. We'll start mixing it next week. And um, and that's been done the same way with people in different places sending their parts in. And um, and then the Orleans 50th anniversary record, because January it'll be 50 years, hard to believe, but yeah. years since our first gig as Orleans when it was a trio of me and Wells Kelly and Larry Hoppin. And uh, so that's being done to date. That's being done with people in different places. Um, but hopefully we'll do, get to do a lot of that together before we finish it. I listened to, well, actually, I watched the video on your single last night. You're playing really well. You're playing better than ever. Thank you. Yeah, I, I've had a couple of, well, the pandemic didn't help because I stopped playing live. All, all our gigs were canceled, Orleans gigs and everybody else, all the tours were canceled. So I had to really practice and try to get my fingers up to snuff. But but thanks. Yeah, I I didn't play, uh, well, I played some wah-wah lead guitar and a little bit of uh and rhythm, of course, guitar on that. Well, I think the track's interesting too. Uh, Alone too long, and the lyrics are interesting. Yeah, because uh, my friend John Paul Daniel had lost his wife. Well, it's been about twenty months now, and um, since she passed away, and he was grieving that loss, and you know her her departing this earth. And after about eight months, he said to another friend, "I don't know when it's time to start dating." And the guy said, "Don't stay alone too long. You might start to like it." And he told me that I said that's got to be a song. Yeah, yeah. And you know, John Paul was a little too close to it to work on it at that time. But I wrote the first verse, and then Tad Richards, a wonderful lyricist from upstate New York, wrote uh, the second and third verses. And you know, we we wound up cutting it, and it became once again it's like a metaphor for what we've all been going through with the pandemic. We've all been alone too long, and we're starting to get out there now. We just did our third weekend show with uh, with Orleans. We played in. Uh, Georgia and Michigan and then Virginia last weekend. And we're going to Iowa this weekend. And then Iowa, it's the dartboard tour. The agents are just throwing a dart. So we're playing Iowa Friday night and then we're playing in North Carolina Sunday night. Are these outdoor gigs? Uh, most of them have actually been indoors. There, there was one and there will be more outdoors, I'm sure. Are people wearing masks? Mostly not. I mean, it depends, of course, on what state you're in. But... Um, we're all fully vaccinated, and I hope the crowd is too. The promoters are not 
to my knowledge, asking for proof of vaccination or anything, but, but I sure hope they are. What's weird about California, I live in Burbank, and we're great here in terms of most people being vaccinated, with very low infection rates, and still everybody wears masks. And it's almost like, is it okay not to? If you see someone with the mask, you put yours on, just, I think, out of respect. Right. I always wear mine when I go into indoor setting. Went to a music store yesterday to pick up my guitar after some work was done on it. And uh, and I had my mask and I pulled it down because nobody inside was wearing it. Mm. And I, I trust my vaccinations. Yeah. But I'm always ready. And, you know, it's being considerate to wear it. Yeah. And it's also, it's like saying this is still serious. And with the, the Delta variant, it is, it is still serious. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think so far they... They find that the uh, the vaccines, the the two major ones, the Pfizer and the Moderna, work against all the variants so far. But there'll probably come a time when they don't, and there'll be a booster shot or something needed. So, you know, I think hopefully we'll all remember that um, it's not anything to be trifled with. I have one more question about politics, if you don't mind. You would know this now from being an outsider and an insider, but especially being an insider. What is it that most people don't understand about contacting their member of Congress if they want to bring up an issue? Well, they don't understand that they'll probably get help. I mean, I've, I have friends, you know, personal friends and people who contact me because they know I was in Congress or, the, you know, that I was on the Veterans Affairs uh, Committee and, and the, uh, chaired the subcommittee on veterans disabilities, which wound up where I did my probably my most important work. I ran as the anti-war candidate and the environmental candidate mainly, but but I wound up, um, because I was in that chairmanship, writing a bill called the Veterans Claims Modernization Act of 2008, which was passed unanimously by, by both the Senate and the House. Every Republican and every Democrat voted yes. Wow. President George W. Bush signed it into law and called it good government, which shocked me. I mean, I kind of run against George W. Yeah, yeah right. But, uh, you know, he doesn't look so bad in retrospect. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, it's... Uh, I, I realized, and my, you know, my staff helped me see this, that, you know, they're there to help. And if, if you have a problem with, well, for us, visas, passports, social security, Medicare, immigration issues, all kinds of, I mean, people will call up and say, can you help me get my septic system approved? And <laughs> that's, that's more of a local government thing. Yeah. But I, when I was in the county legislature, I helped when I could, you know, uh, so all of your representatives really want to perform what they call constituent services to help people they represent. And one reason they want to do it is because it helps them get reelected. Uh, it's just nothing like having people go, I know John Hall, he helped me a lot in my family. You know, it's like that. They talk about it. And uh, you can spend a lot, a lot of money on advertising to get the same goodwill that you get from actually helping constituents. So I would say, you know, if, you, if you're having a problem that's uh, – whether you're not getting your stimulus payment yet or whether you're going to get evicted and, you know, you're not sure whether the moratorium on evictions covers you or how long it does or whatever the issue is, you know, if you don't know what to do, call your representative. Good advice. Where can one get your album? Uh, wherever you get your music. It's uh, it's in a record store. Uh, hopefully, if there are any record stores left, it's in, you know, you can get it from Amazon or Walmart or, you know, Alva. They target, you know, those big stores, chains. You can also get it from, from uh, you can listen or download it from 
the streaming services, you know, Apple and Amazon and Spotify and Pandora and all those those guys. So I would just say, you know, wherever you get your music, you should be able to find Reclaiming My Time. Last question, John. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? If you have to ask me, don't do it. <laughs> That's excellent. I have kids ask me all the time, like, I, I really love playing guitar and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to finish college, and, and but I think I want to go to the music business. What do you think? And I say, if you have to ask me, don't do it. Because I, I was driven. You know, I just uh, loved playing music and nobody, my parents thought I was throwing my life away, you know, and pretty much all that generation did. And uh, I had one aunt, my aunt Connie, who I loved dearly, was the only one that said, well, I was sitting at her table crying <laughs> with my cousins, my fabulous Thurston ladies around me, talking about how I just, I, this is what I wanted to do. And I, my parents were just like, they had said it against it. And she said, well, if it's what you really love, then go for it. And I was like, thank you. Yeah. Everybody needs somebody like that in their life. But basically, you have to be obsessed to get to the top of any triangle, like the music business is a, is a pyramid, it's a triangle. You just, a lot of people at the bottom and a few people in the middle and very few people at the top. And um, that's like dance, ballet, you know, sports, all, all kinds of endeavors, uh, any kind of the arts in general, you know, authors or painters. So that's my best advice. You can find out more about John at johnhallmusic.com. That's johnhallmusic, all one word. Com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, You'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.